out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the multi-instrumentalist and artist. It is Quentin Budworth, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Has a phenomenal CV of uh, music and um, yes, <laughs> just lots about music, but also has recently collaborated with Lou, um, the guitarist with the Red Guitars, who I do believe are reforming and uh, having some gigs, I think next year. But anyway, enough about the Red Guitars. This is all about a collaboration they did recently, um, which is titled Agent Stalin, and they've released an album called uh, European Howl, which is kind of out. Fantastic 10-track album, which is full of catchy hurdy-gurdy tunes and songs, hypnotic drones, live bass grooves, and strings. It's all very experimental and very excited, exciting. So you can check that out on Bandcamp and probably various other places. Anyway, this is uh, me in conversation with Quentin. And um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, what a classic. Anyway, look, Quentin, tell us more. Tell us now. Tell us everything. Oh, wow. What a good question. Um, I was born in the same year. So I'm like 64, a 64 baby. Um, my, what I really liked was things like Magic Fly. Um, and um, I really liked um, Gary Newman. Um, and the, uh, these are the sort of the first out, first sort of CDs. That, well, not even CDs. They were little, little uh, vinyl, seven inch things I bought as a kid. But my first memory of like music was, I suppose it's got to be something like Slade mm-hmm. or that sort of. Um, I mean, I love T Rex. Um, that kind of. Um, that kind of stuff, that sort of glam rocky, big flares. We My sister glam was rock. really into Yeah. Yeah, that sort of stuff. <laughs> but there, it's a bit vague, really, until I become a teenager when I start to have a bit of uh, pocket money. Yes, well, it does and help. And, start and, to... and getting pocket money is quite a difficult thing in the 70s, I seem to remember. It took weeks, months to save like two or three P five P's and 10 P's until you bought, had enough of like 79 P and bought a single, which is very exciting. But were you in a, was it a musical house? Were your parents at all musical? No, not at all. I mean, I was I kind of on my own, really. Um, I was really interested in guitar and stuff like that. Um, and I just kind of was obsessed by it. Um, so I just learned through that. So when did you first get a guitar? Oh, I would have been maybe 11, 12. So that was quite early on. That's quite... That's yeah. And I, I mean, I still play guitar, uh, but for uh, for a Kaylee band, as like as a jobbing kind of thing. I never used it in anger in, for pop music or for like stage performances. I always felt a bit like, oh, it's the guitar. The bar's very high for this instrument. Yes, absolutely. 
the expectations you, are always high, aren't they, for it? So you were probably a bit like me, a bit too young to hit the punk period, because frankly, we were not that old when punk here, unless you were really hip and on the scene and had an older brother who dragged you to gigs at the 100 Club, but that might not have happened, actually. So you were sort of, you'd be 16, 1980. So Thatcher got in, 79, a memorable year, and we had the Falkland War, and then we had the minor strike. So what was the kind of early 80s like for you when you'd hit that golden age of 16? Did you stay on at school at 16? Yeah, I did. I, I stayed on at school and I kind of took up residence in the art room um, pretty much all the time. Um, absolutely hated Thatcher and all that she stood for. I was really, really strongly against it. All that rhetoric, rhetoric of like greed is good and um, like the encouraging like a rat race mentality. So yeah. Um, but we only had like one or two records in the art room and a really dodgy like old record player thing. Right. Um, and one of my favorite, and oh, was it Killing Me Softly with his song was one of the things, but what a great song. And it was almost like, that was like the soundtrack t- to that period in the art room because that was all there was. Um, uh, but then in the parties, people were listening to The Stranglers and... Um, Oh, what? The Dickies, Plastic nice. Bertrand. It was kind of like a very, I was brought up in St. Ives near Cambridge. Right. So it was kind of a bit kind of cosmopolitan, but not too cosmopolitan. Um, a bit kind of, a bit rocky, a bit five years behind everywhere else, if that makes sense. Well, well God, I'm, I'm from East Anglia. We're literally 15 years behind most people. And during that period anyway, I mean, I mean that that whole sort of 80s, Punk hadn't hit. <laughs> I mean, it had in a little way. I mean, there were people who'd say we're, they were into punk, but that was a very small group of people. I, you know, I would imagine. And, and to be honest, the, the back, mainstream, the, mainstream sort of rock and um, like obscurity corner stuff, like Sid Barrett and Edgar Broughton and. Well, I suppose M- if you'd come from St Ives, there is that sort of Pink Floyd connection, isn't there? Yeah, well, uh, with Grantchester Mod. Uh, meadow yeah that. so that yeah. would have been it really so but yes yeah, so, I mean, psychedelic stuff as well oh were you oh nice because yeah. in because in our area of east anglia status quo were the main band you know you would not ever say anything against the quo without getting beaten up really so you just learned to love them did people have those denim jackets with like oh, yeah absolutely and stuff on the back that was a thing yeah and if you were really hard you had the denim jacket and then you had a leather jacket, or was it? No, you had the leather jacket, oh, and then the denim jacket without the sleeves, with more band names, you know, like Quo, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. You know, that was all that, you know, Led Zeppelin. So that was a very kind of look. And most people, I mean, they weren't Hell's Angels, but they did look very scary because it would have probably been up to a, a two fifty motorbike. They wouldn't have gone beyond that really, because most people, in a way, it was very working class. So most of the kids went into a factory, like you know you know, the chicken factory or some sort of other sort of pretty awful dead-end job, really, or worked on a farm. You know, it was a kind of rural world. But, yes, the motorbike gangs of uh, the little towns were quite something, really. (laughs) Really something, yeah. And then um, there was, like, the... um, Some of the people that used to organise the Green Gathering lived in St Ives, so I used to go over there quite a lot. And I had more 
um, cosmopolitan tastes. Right, they like Hawkwind, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, I went to see Hawkwind a few times, and I've actually at one point um, spent some time with them at Rockfield Studio. <laughs> Rockfield Studio, that is fantastic. Yeah. So, what year was this? Oh God, this was um, after I finished college. A friend of um, mine was called Sally French, and she was going out with Alan Davy, who was the um, the bassist in Hawkwind. Oh God, did he uh, take over Lenny? Yeah, he's they like really. He was the boy wonder of bass, and um, we got invited to kind of take Sally out for days while they were doing the recording and sorting all the band business out. My God, that's amazing. I remember Lemmy's. Oh, yeah, that's not something to talk about, is it? When he got kicked out of the band, he he said what he... Yeah, anyway, so that's just a bit... That's just kind of old rock and roll stuff, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yes, God, that's I mean, good. Was, so you so you got to see the really band. Funny band. Yes, I would imagine. So who was the, uh, the saxophone player still with them at that stage, the famous uh, Turner? Nick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think they all sat round. I mean, my abiding memory of it was them all sat round counting money from the tour, like on a one for you, one for me kind of nice. basis. God, I don't... It, it was it was jaw dropping. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like a student, and I I was lucky to see maybe I don't know a grand in a year. Yes. So <laughs> they had a lot, they had a lot they had a lot of cash. Piles of it. That's very exciting. I thought you were going to meet. I'd say you just sat around and watched them get stoned, but no, not at all. They were just no, no. That, it was business, you know. <laughs> it was business with good bookkeeping, I'm sure. So that's oh, good. Well, yeah, I, I love the one for me, one for you thing. <laughs> and did they split it all kind of equally? They weren't sort of like, well, I write the songs, mate. No, it was literally <laughs> shelled out. It's really nice. Funny. So when you when you finished, did you do A levels in you know and did art and go yeah, on to college? I did. Yeah, I went to Leicester and I got really interested in Leicester in sort of folk music and acoustic music. So at that Roy time, Hart, so because at that time in the eighties, I can remember because I come from East Anglia, people loved Blow Isabella. That was the band that we went to Blow Isabella Cayleys, and there was a book which. Um, which is about the East Anglian fairs called The Sun in the East. And it's all about the, Bar- the Barsham and Albion fairs of the, the early 70s, mid 70s. And there's a very early picture of Blozabella in here. And um, or playing on stilts. Playing on stilts. I think even look at that, music in the air. And also a young Steve and Ursula Pank who were in the third ear band. So there was a lot of kind of these crazy and groovy people. In, and look, Robin Williamson was there as well. So it was a very exciting stuff of blows, the early blows of Bella before Paul and Nigel came in. But that was around that time when I bought the cassette, The Wall of Sound, which was... The Wall mes- of Sound, right. The, the mesmerising album, which kind of hypnotised me. Even though I was an indie kid in the 80s, you know, I still thought... I saw them live and I was just absolutely... I just loved the sound that they created. So folk music, yes, crept into your life as well during the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. And like by the um, sort of mid to late 80s, once I'd graduated, I, I was going to Blow Sabella gigs and generally just kind of doing as many 
folk gigs as I can get. Well, there was also all the folk festivals. I can remember various ones that I went to, which I won't be able to remember the name. I know there was the Cambridge, but there was other, you know, there was like, you got Folk Roots magazine. There was a particular edition probably in spring where they just had 16, 18 pages of all these festivals that took place. And that was when I started trying to go to quite a few of them and saw people like Catherine Tickell and such, you know, such legends. At the time, they weren't. They were very young, but they they became legends, didn't didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And there was that this great burgeoning, wasn't there, of traditional music, but not just like the songs, but like the instrumental music. And that's like Catherine Tickell, Blosabella, yes. those kind of people um, were part of it. There were loads of others, but I mean, they were the ones that I was in, really interested in. Oh, uh, Martin Bennett. You know, the Piper, yeah, the Scottish Piper. Uh, he was doing all sorts of really weird and wonderful things as well. Uh, yes. A little bit later on, him and Talvin singing, that kind of thing. But it was like the, it was like a pure acoustic thing at the time. It was. And it was really that, that, that was the aesthetic. And then kind of that's when I got really interested in it and started following it. So I used to get folk roots. I used to read it. And I was a punter for, for a long time just kind of like playing music, like for gigs and things like that, but not recording or anything like that. So what instrument just were this, you playing at this stage? Well, it's a, it's a long story, but um, when I left college, <laughs> I, I sold everything and I went to India and that's like another thing. But Fantastic. then when I came back, I had, as you do, you know, for, for a year. Um, yeah, it's a good thing, wasn't it? Like Thatcher was still there, so it was like... <laughs> <laughs> go do something go useful. find yourself in india yeah well yeah and um so when i came back i set up a, a street theater and street music company Who, what were they uh, called the gritty gogs and part of it was playing music so we used to go around busking and stuff like that and and doing music for events so i did like a lot of that but i was buying folk roots and that was my aspiration you know like to to be a pucker. Yes. A pucker player. <laughs> um, but it took a long time. Well, so it's I, also, I mean, during that time, they did seem, I mean, you might be able to sort of enlighten me here, but I suppose with any scene, it feels like there's a very closed kind of society, isn't there? And there's like the hierarchy of kind of the folk gods from the sort of 60s and 70s, you know, like Martin Carthy, and then you had June Tabor and... And uh, steel eye span and people like that. So did you, you know, and it, and it, and it often has an association a lot of the time with kind of old people with tankards. Because the first time I went to the, the Cambridge Folk <laughs> Festival, I'd been to Glastonbury, which, you know, everybody was so stoned and, you know, just trying to sell you acid and, and you know, anything. You know, it was quite a shock, actually. It was 87. And then I went to the Cambridge Folk Festival. And it was just like men with tankards hanging around their waists which were quite large yeah. wastes. I mean, it was quite like, oh, there's no, there's no smell of drugs in the air or people trying to sell me speed. So it was quite weird, really. Yeah, super conservative. It certainly was at that time with small C um, in terms of like the scene and quite old already. Yes, I know. Well, it's interesting. Actually, I can see it here. So I'm just going to bore you with this. So I've got this, this other book, Cambridge Folk Festival, which had all the, okay. I think it's got all the, the bay, yeah, the lot of posters and a lot of the artists. And it is kind of one of those ones where you went, 
you know, and, and you were going to feel like you're in a, not in an old people's home, but it was quite established, wasn't it? Yeah, but also super safe because, like, you know, I was at, I went to, like, when you go to festivals like Stonehenge and things like that, and the, <laughs> and the police are kind of gunning for you, it's really nice to go to somewhere nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're, they're like, the worst thing they're going to do is, like, say, the bus stops over there or. Yeah. <laughs> There isn't some mad person taking LSD and driving around on a motorbike quite fast thinking, actually, that's a little bit, you know, risky. Anyway, that, that was good. So you, so were you on that front still playing guitar or had you started? Yeah, guitar out? and baran and sitern, which is like a 10-string guitar. Right. Like a big mandolin kind of thing. You play it cordially, a bit like Donald Lunny with his bazooki, that kind yeah. of thing i'm really into things like the bothy band and and blazabella and stuff like that and yes. just playing those tunes and playing lots of irish sessions well i know because the the baran or boran as people they used to change the way they said it when they came back from ireland after going for a weekend workshop which gave them a bit more status i think but yes did you did you did you end up going to a lot of these work folk weekend workshops no we were just like young guns and just traveling around just kind of guerrilla playing and um just just really full of it god you must have got, they must have tutted when they like, saw you lot turn up mustn't they you must have broke the kind of vibe absolutely like young fun and just absolutely full of it and it was it was completely different sort of approach to like what 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 music could be and what the function of it was and and maybe we could all smile and have a nice time mm. <laughs> it doesn't all have to be in a minor key or if it is it can be really bloody fast <laughs> <laughs> but i think then you got bands like dervish that came along i can't quite remember when they they first appeared but there was some new kind of folk outfits that suddenly appeared in the 90s and then you had that collaboration between June Table and the Oyster Band which I thought was quite a good album though I'm sure purists would have hated it but and then obviously we had the levelers that sort of happened and the, and the men they couldn't hang which had sort of brought in folk music and then you had the Pogues so there was a kind of a bit of a crossover with the indie gang wasn't there absolutely yeah I mean like there was and like where we were like I was living in Huddersfield just outside Huddersfield at the time there were bands like You Slosh which was like our version of Moving Hearts but from the north of England um right and um you know with Irish Pipes and uh, just a really great fun band and the Cajun Aces so there was a real burgeoning roots scene and it was you know really good fun yeah to sort of be around well, there was another band, they're from Leeds called Chumbawamba, and they would often do a sort of a, a very acoustic kind of set amongst themselves and even did a few, they did a one Rebel Songs kind of, a, it was an album, though it was kind of pressed as a 10-inch, 10-inch rather than 12 inches. And, and um, it was good in small doses, that's all I can say. After about the fifth song or the tenth song, you kind of got a bit hit with the Rebel Songs that they had picked up over the, over the century. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, I, 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 I really like, I mean, like, songs are great, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> I really like instrumental music. I like, I really like instrumental music or, or music where the, the words aren't really clear and they become like part of the texture of the sound. Mm -hmm. I find like words are very anchoring 
or very they really steer your um journey through the through the tune that makes sense it's like they're like emotional cues a lot of the time so i i generally tend to listen to instrumental music because i'm a bit weird like that yes well um I don't know. It's not that weird, is it? But it's it's quite interesting. Though, who did I listen to recently? Oh, yes, the soundtrack to uh, Midnight Express, and I hadn't heard that for decades. I thought, my God, that's the most exciting bit of music I've ever heard in my life. Obviously, I was exaggerating at the time, but it was like I hadn't heard it for so long. It was so dramatic. If you ever get a chance, just have a little listen to it on Spotify. Yes, it's 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 a it's a winner. So then, as the nineties progressed, did you? How was the theatre company and your musical career? It was going really good. Um, we were like playing and like touring. We went to Japan, went to Germany fairly regularly. And then the my partner at the time, he was like my partner, uh, recorded. We, we made an album of solo Hammer Dulcimer work. She played Dulcimer, and then from that we sort of set up a little label. And she got a deal with. Uh, we we published it, but she got distribution through Harmonia Mundi. Right. Well, that's so good. this would have been at the time of the great Catherine Tickells and all that. Yes, so that was that was kind of going well. So were you quite focused in sort of making a career of this being your career and part yeah. in life? Yeah, well, we it kind of it was a bit of a balancing act because like we needed to bring the money in, but we also had this real, we were quite good at that and we were quite good at music and it was kind of juggling the two, you know, like getting strong enough in music for it to be as good a business as the street theatre was. Yes. Um, and, and managed it in the end. And did you, at that stage, did you have a Cayley band as a sort of, a, a, as a backup? No, we just had this, like, street medieval band, and that could be between two and seven players. Right. Um, and when did we start? And then I did, th- th- like, Mandy did her thing with the, uh, the album's called Spiral Dance, Amanda Lowe, Hammer Dosma is the thing that she made. And then I decided that I was going to do one <laughs> because she had, like, we had loads of kids, so it became impossible for for Mandy to tour. So what happened was I teamed up with an American guy called Tim Rayborn, um, who's, who's from California but was doing a PhD in medieval culture at Leeds, this just, you can't make this stuff up really. Mm. And he needed some extra pin money. And he was a really shit hot medieval musician and Arabic percussionist. So we just went on the road. And I was on the road with Tim, basically gigging, not every day, but most days for, for, a, for a summer into autumn period, like for a good like nine months. Yeah. And then the next season, we sort of revisited it. And we, and we thought, well, do an album and then I kind of got this gig because I'd got the hurdy-gurdy with Sons of Arca and so I, I was kind of touring with them and doing the Grinigog stuff and you know with Tim and um and then out of that came Celtarabia. Right uh, wow so when did you first get the the hurdy-gurdy when did that what oh right okay it would be 32 years ago 30 something years ago so it would have been it was when my lad was born (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you a funny story about that uh 1988 
1988, if I knew. That was when the year after the Smiths broke up. That was a bit much. Uh -huh. Anyway, never mind. And then the ecstasy world started to appear. So then, yeah, so what made you go towards the hurdy-gurdy? Was it seeing Nigel in Blows of It Heaven? was, yeah. I saw Nigel and Paul duetting in the middle of a... Like, the Blows of Bella thing's great. It's lovely. But it's a very soupy sound. It's a real thick, yeah. rich, um, quite harmonically complex sound. But then in the middle of that... They just did us. They just played like pipes and Gurdy, and they just rocked it, like really stripped back. But you could just hear the thing of the really beautiful melodic playing and the rhythmic. Yes, yes. Well, it was around probably that time or the next couple of years. They they did a another project, didn't they? Ancient, ancient bebop. Ancient beatbox, not heartbeat. Yes, and they featured the one and only Sheila Shandri on one of the vocals, on one of the songs anyway, which was just exquisite. So, um, yeah, they, they were sort of trying to branch out and I think have commercial success. I think they were on cooking vinyl records at that stage as well. That's so. right, yeah. Um, uh, what, um, they're on cooking vinyl and I'm trying to think who signed them. He's He did the big chill, the guy who signed them. Oh, right. Yes, the big chill. Uh, Pete Lawrence. Pete Lawrence. God, that was... Uh, the ambition of people is amazing. The big chill was quite something, wasn't it? So, yeah. yeah we so, played the first one. Did you? Where was that held? Black I Mountains. It was very exciting at the time, wasn't it? I didn't go. But it did seem very like, oh my God, there's another festival on. I think because festivals had had a bit of a hard time during the 80s with... Lots of issues. There was also something which kind of, you know, came up in the 70s and the early 80s. In this area was the Travellers and the Convoy, which made a lot of festivals quite hard for organisers to cope with because, you know, things got a bit messy. So I think if you're an amateur, you know, festival organiser, it kind of can be a bit too intimidating seeing 20 people's bus, you know, big bustles turn up going, we're going to come in regardless. So, um, but that's another whole other story, actually. So how did you, with Sons of Arca, they're a reggae dub band, aren't they? Yeah. Um, it's really, that's a funny story. But I lived in Marsden, which is near Huddersfield, and just over the hill is um, Ashton Underline, and like Manchester's just literally over the hill. Mm -hmm. And we, I used to go to a session on a Wednesday night at, in Saddleworth. And it was like a traditional uh, folk thing uh, with Jamie Knowles, who's like a really famous English fiddler. Right. Who found like a load of different manuscripts of music and brought holding a load of new music back to the thing. Anyway, really popular session. So every Wednesday we'd go. And then this guy turns up there one day and he's called Sunflower Robin. Mm. Now, Sunflower Robin <laughs> plays mouth organ and he plays it he plays beautifully like this so we're sort of having a good laugh and playing playing away and um just just really having a great time in this session and he's like flying the tunes in and i'm doing the thing and and i'm playing the gurdy and all this stuff and he, he comes up to me at the end of the night he goes you need to blow sons of arca and then that's it he 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 took my number and then i got the call from um uh, Michael Ward, Wadada, and he said, oh, I'll come, are you going to be there next week? So he came to see me at the session, <laughs> and that was it, I was in. 
You were in the band, my God. And have they the been? Band. And how long have they been going for? I think he signed to Virgin in in 1977 or something. They've done so many albums; it's it's jaw dropping. Yes, I, 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 I can imagine. It's they, like unbelievable. I was looking at their mix cloud because Michael's just been in touch with me about doing a mega dog somewhere in London. Oh my God, I forgot um, about mega dog. God, I used to have friends who were. Uh, you might have come across him. God, this is this is going off. But he used to teach Baran or Boran, depending on which. Mog. Mog, yes. Yeah, he he's on he's on one of my albums. Mog, yes. Ancient forces, he's great. So um, yeah, so we knew Mog really well, and he used to put on a a folk experience early early January. He used to sort of do folk beat, I think, or some kind of you know, or long weekend of workshops and and bands. And uh, yes, in the early nineties or mid nineties. So there you go. Renegade rhythms. Renegade yeah. rhythms. My God, it all. My God. So it you still up. It does all join up, God. Yes, I suddenly remember he got really from folk, got into really ravey music, getting into his DJ stuff and all that world. So um uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. He was really into trance and uh, that stuff. He played with us uh at the boat race in Cambridge. Right. And he recorded on Ancient Forces, the one the record we did for Osmosis. And um but he had his own projects going on in Norfolk, I think he was from. Nor- yeah. Near Norwich or something. Tottington. <laughs> Is that where it was? That's where, or Borough. I think he lives in one of those villages. Yeah, it's like 15 miles north of Norwich. So there you go. My God, that's amazing. I mean, there was also during that period, there was the famous um, Afro-Celt sound system and Dr. Didge. So there was a lot of people like who I think was on the Real World record label, wasn't he? Dr. Didge. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Didge. Um, we did loads of gigs on the same bill as Dr. Dr. Didge. Um, Afro-Cuts were just a little touch later. Right. I think, uh, like 96, 97. I think they, the initial sort of ideas were starting to float around then. There was all this stuff about mixing cultures and m- mashing it in with contemporary music. Yes. My way into dance music before hearing the Sons of Arca stuff and actually doing going on tour with them and doing the in-session stuff for radio, one was through um, really late-night pirate radio in Huddersfield, and there was a one track called uh, Didgeridoo, or I can't remember, it was Aphex oh, Didgeridoo or something like that, and they used to play it all the time. I think they only had the one record, but it was a good record. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yes, God, it's it's all too much, isn't it? And uh, getting all these references, yes, the famous um, Dutri Do, God, they they loved all those rave, those early raves, and Mega Dog was just such a thing, weren't they? People whizzing all and the all, yes, and um, Astralasia was the other one, wasn't it? And uh, well, that's Leap Guru. Um, there was a whole scene of this like crazy fusion music with dance music the the dance music seemed to be the glue yeah uh, uh, that brought everyone together but then there were all these different spices going into the mix it was really a good time actually well there yeah there'd been bands like 808 state a guy called gerald then zion train dread dread something dread zone dread zone that's the one yeah so i you know and there was a lot of kind of people 
smoking a bit, having a bit of ecstasy, getting very merry. And everyone was very loved up. It was the 90s. It was the John Major years. <laughs> We'd moved, moved, moved on. We had moved on. All bitter. <laughs> we probably moaned around the 90s, but now we should have just enjoyed it more, really, shouldn't we? Never mind. Anyway, the music was great, and uh, that's good. So look, then, so how, God, so how long were you in the Sons of Arca for? Well, you never leave. <laughs> you never leave, is it like the uh, Hotel uh, you California, just don't isn't it? for a while. Ah, um, right. It's a collective. It's a collective, but it's really, it's headed up by Michael, and so... Um, I, I think I was in there for maybe two, two and a half years. And like I did, I did, I had a couple of tunes that were like tunes that I led. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then tunes that I played on, but I wasn't always playing. So sometimes I was on the desk doing the, mixing the dubs. Yeah. Which was great. You know, like if you were in the band, because it was such a big band, not everyone could be on stage at the same time. So it was, if you weren't on stage, you were doing, you're mixing the sound. Mm. And uh, doing the, de- you know, all the delays and the big reverbs to to make the, dub it up. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like Adrian Sherwood and the on you sound system, wasn't it? Really, it was kind of um, the old Adrian and whoever he he sort of wanted to work with really at the time, Gary Clell and people like that. So um, Ben Sherman. So that was cool. So then, so the ninth that was the nineties. Was there much more in the nineties for you, or was it? Well, then I did started to do the Celtarabia thing which was like an organic dance thing. Um, so it's taking the aesthetics of um, dance music, but applying it to like modal and medieval music. Yes. So mm-hmm. hurdy-gurdy-led kind of dance stuff. And what's your take on, you know, the the kind of keenness of kind of, it's not just about nostalgia, but that world that is Arcadia, you know, because there, there is this sort of little bit of this rewriting history, isn't there? The narrative of our past sometimes and painting it is a sort of a, a way, but that never really existed, which, you know, Britain's very good at because we've got so much ancient history. So what, what, was, what was your sort of feelings about sort of redis- wanting to rediscover kind of, say, ancient music? My, well, my take on it was, like, I'm from Gibraltar. So when I kind of was a kid, I used to go there a lot. And you could hear Spanish radio, English radio, Moroccan radio, just by doing that. Yeah. And you could switch between the music and all of a sudden they all start to connect. So I thought of this place, I had the idea of Celtarabia, which was a mixture of this, all this, the stuff that was in my musical young DNA. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, why not have a place that nobody's ever been to? Got to be better than Huddersfield, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't know. I've never been there. Where's this the other place that had the, there's the one in 12 club, was that Bradford? And then there was another place yeah. just outside there, which everybody loved to Hebden move. Trades Club, Hebden Bridge Trades Club. Oh, awesome. Everyone loved Hebden Bridge, didn't they? It was like the Glastonbury of the North, wasn't it? And then there was another place which I can't remember, but it was a very, it was very right on, and had a lot of um, gay couples. God, that's a, such a Sweden statement, but it was I around. That, uh, I think that's Hebden. Hebden, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, it was so right on. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So look, that's the night. God, so that's very, yeah, that's interesting. 
because um, there was another band, and, and they are still going, called Dissidenten, which were, I think they're based in Berlin, but they've got a dance thing, but they, they incorporate a lot of North um, African music, you know, and it's just got that amazing drive and rhythm, but, you know, it's very hypnotic, and um, it was another one of those John Peel, you know, discoveries that I had, like most of my record collection, really. God, why did he die? It's not fair, but um, <laughs> that's just another story, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, like, we used to get the odd play on John Pill, so that was really nice for the Celtarabia stuff. Absolutely. And with, with Sons of Arca, we did, I did like in session. Did you? So you went down to Maiden yeah. Vale, Maiden Vale. Yeah, Maiden Vale. And it was with um, the guy, it was like the full band and then and Rowley from the Osric Tentacles. Okay. And he was doing like very high melodic bass. Um, and then Wayne Worm was doing like the, the real heavy, heavy stuff. Quite a session. It was like the BBC guys, you know, they still had the, the overcoats, like the, the like, <laughs> like a janitor's overcoat, you know, they still had the things wow. for the bed. It's really old school. God. Was it, and was it Dale Griffith who produced that? The, not the I, I can't remember. It's on, um, it's on SoundCloud. You can see it. Um, on, not SoundCloud, on Bandcamp. Right. Sons of Art. Yeah, this is what... Uh, Mick was asking me to have a listen to to see if I could still do it. <laughs> nice, that's very good. So yes, yeah, so then that takes us up to the 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 millennium, and then sort of what happens for the last, you know, you you know, twenty years. Oh my God! Well, apart from kids, and then being an artist, and um, having like a, it's a really really odd thing because it was like bands, 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 bands. Then I had a, a recording studio. Uh, and was recording, you know, odd stuff, library music, and had a couple of Celtarabia albums. And and then a friend of mine who worked for the BBC said, oh, we really need, we need a producer to make some music videos. And I just happened to have bought, just bought a video camera. And then from that, I kind of got into doing filmmaking. Blimey, it's just that simple. That un- Well, it's interesting because... It, it was literally, it was for... Um, uh, what was it? Children in need, and it, they they wanted someone to make music videos with these kids, and um, they were they were all broadcast on the show. We just thought we were just making them just for for laughs, really. Um, <laughs> but these kids had written, uh, you know, we, I record the songs with the with these these young adults, teenagers, and then they we made the videos together i edited them handed them to the bbc thinking that's it they'll never see the light of day and then they were all broadcast which meant that i could get uh, trained up by screen yorkshire right um and so i did like a, did a couple of shorts for screen yorkshire and then got into video production because it was a it was much more home-based and didn't rely on touring god that's fantastic uh, how long did that last for most of the noughties um to about 2012, something like that. Blimey, that's a, that's a good run. It's interesting, because there was a documentary on Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales, and, you know, after the band, you know, he'd had a solo album, and then he suddenly started making videos for bands in the 90s, and it was a bit like, how did that happen? And it was a bit like, I don't know either. It was just a bit co, bit of a fluky thing that he did. It's just a bit weird. It's really weird how it works. So I went... So I got the training and stuff like that and did all that thing. And then I started working as an artist in school for creative partnerships. I did 10 years of that. 
right does all kinds of stuff with 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 teachers and um kids doing you know drama music uh new media photography all the all, filmmaking all sorts so that was kind of a golden period i guess oh it was great just like i was working every day pretty much wow so and for an artist that's unheard of yes absolutely and and a golden time there you go you can't say new labor can you well you can but there you go well no um... i think um (laughs) their their thing with um creative partnerships was that it was a school improvements program by stealth and the way to get that to happen was to use arts to actually upskill the teachers because there was this huge digital divide like a lot of the teachers were like had never really handled a computer or anything (laughs) like that and all of a sudden they were expected to be able to teach it so it was quite handy to have people in that were doing it all the time and knew what the stuff could do and you know Yes, what they needed to get to make make learning fun. Blimey, there you go. You were at the forefront of that. And then, then what happened in two thousand and twelve? Was there a sort of uh, oh, then then it all it all collapsed instantly with the change of regime. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. I know it does. I know people say why vote. You think mm, there's a good reason, but um, yes. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so then what happens then for the last nine years oh my god well you know there's a divorce uh then a, a new place to live and then like i do lots i do a lot of work with the kaylee band yeah uh which is like my jobbing job because i don't really like working full-time what an admission well, uh, I don't know. There's there's been a lot of artists I've I've heard. You know, in a, in in all honesty, I think it's like well, it, it, to work full time. Uh, well, it's okay if it was like art related, but I think if it's not art related, and it is literally a job that you're not that in love with. It does kill your creativity, doesn't it? Yeah, and also I'm just not interested in it. Yes. Um, so how did you then get involved with this latest project then, the ancient, um, ancient, ancient? <laughs> ancient Starling. Yes, that's the one. This is really intriguing because Lou and I played together in Celtarabia, so we have, we have form. You have, <laughs> you have history, don't you? Previous. <laughs> um, and, um, and we were both kind of like kicking around going, I need to do a gig. This is just ridiculous. This is the third lockdown. Yes. (laughs) We've done nothing. So she just said, I think we should do an album, which is exactly what what we did. This is it. So when when, when did you first come across her? Oh, when we moved to um, Hull. When I moved to Beverly, I kind of wanted to get some new musicians in the band so it was easier to, to rehearse and tour. Yeah, and um, someone said to to me, "Oh, Lou, ask Lou." <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of it's a really holds a very strange um, place. It's very small, so it's really easy to connect with people who are similar. Right, it's a bit like Norwich, isn't it? In that sense, yeah, sort of stuck out on its own, and yes, 
<laughs> probably the same actually yes there isn't a huge amount there isn't like oh you know i mean it often you know people there's a bit of a cliche about you know everyone knows each other from different scenes you know and it's it's that kind of thing that it doesn't take much to sort of if you wanted to sort of network with lots of people who were similar norwich is quite a good place and i guess it's the same with you yeah i think it was really through alan raw probably through alan raw who came and did some drumming for us um and knew lou and said, oh, I know the bassist too, it would be really good. Right. So I think that's kind of how it happened. But, you, I mean, like, it's really a long time ago. So I can't, <laughs> <laughs> can't so, rightly remember. No, I know. But creating interest and false narratives is part of life, isn't it? But, so when did you sit down and say, let's, let's create this new band? Now, that's sort of just after Christmas, Lou rang me up and said, really we need to do something so she said what do you think about doing an album and I said oh yeah that'd be all right so I said look what what I'll do is I'll record some Gertie and you just as you will do as do as you please with it yeah kind of quite because I know Lou really well so um so I knew she wouldn't make a mess of it (laughs) (laughs) and um and she she came back with um with a track that we'd we'd played together a few times, so it was like it wasn't really to check the musical compatibility of it. It was to check do, could we actually do this technically? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we had a kind of piece of music that we knew, um, and we kind of had an outcome. We kind of knew what was possible with it, and it was just to see if like the two things were doing up, and it, and they did, and um, and it's and we kind of did it, and then. Lou did a video for it, and then we just put it out, and people seemed to really like it. Yes. So, was the song that you did was that the drive, drive the cold winter away one? No, it was um, "Il n'est pas temps." Uh, it's not never too late. Oh, it's not too late. Right. Which is like French um, Michael Pichon tune, um, and that was the first one. And then the second one, which was the one that was really went woo whoosh was um, Drive Cold Winter Away, the Playford one. Right, the play, John Playford. Mm. He was from Norwich. Was he? Yes. He was, a he was one of the first music, music publishers, you know. Yes, no, we, we, we all love the Playford ball, you know, those, those ancient dances, you know, from decades. Yeah, he was from Norwich and he suddenly, he collected all the, you know, the, the music, thank God someone did, because it would have just all disappeared really. And... Uh, Yes, and that's that's the name actually. So um, there you go, a bit of a history lesson there. And then, and so, how did you find lockdown period? You know, just kind of emotionally and spiritually. Oh, 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 it's hard. Um, first, first off, like I quite like being alone, so that bit didn't really bother me. Mm. But I think it was just like the the lying and the misinformation and the management of information and just listening to the BBC doing its propaganda role. And it it was, it drove me bonkers. I used to, I lived right near the sea. So I was doing like, I don't know, seven or eight miles a day walking to escape the house on my supposed hour of. Yes. 
let freedom let loose to freedom that's the word <laughs> strange concept yes um pretty so, patel didn't follow you did she oh, no <laughs> but yeah no i struggled a bit with it um in terms of like it was quite nice because i was getting to play a lot but eventually you kind of run out of steam with that um so it's kind of got to the point of like feeling a bit We sort of promised that we were going to be let out, weren't we? Mm. And then they locked down again. And then we promised that we were going to be let out again. And then we were kind of locked down again. And um, So I just needed to kind of have some agency. Does that make sense? So like when Lou said, oh, let's do an album, it was just like, yes. So all the, the sort of things, the, all the sort of the negative things that you might say to yourself like oh that's not a very good idea nobody buys records all that sort of jabber 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 the grown-up sort of scripts that stop you being an artist yeah. that's kind of that was just out of the window and it was just like yeah i think i think we'll never moan about having a deadline again will we because actually having that deadline kind of you realize it keeps you driven a little bit and gives you that kind of wake up in the middle of the night going, oh my god i haven't got long i must get that done and you kind of think you always, you know, because I have spoke to a lot of artists during the last year and, and I think everyone did struggle a bit, really, from bad to really, you know, bad. And it was kind of not having that, oh, God, I've got to get the album, I've got to do the tour, you know, oh, you know. And it's like, oh, my God, now I'm really missing all those. I, no one's ever going to moan about that again, are they? You know, because it's, you know, that deadline, you know, which suddenly creeps up and you think, oh, I should stop washing the windows or pretending I'm really, you know, going to go and do the gardening. It's like, I just got to get on with the, the task in hand because I think it's, it, it did sort of throw everybody really and have an urgency and a bit of a panic attack of, Oh my God, I've really got to sort this out and I've got to get it done by the weekend is you realize it's quite healthy actually, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like I was like in the, the year before the lockdown, I was really lucky. I got a grant from the Arts Council and it was to travel all over Europe and study hurdy-gurdy with like top players from all over Europe. It was an incredible year. And I, I visited like 12, 13 countries right. and spent most of the year traveling around Europe, just hanging out, learning stuff. And um, I just meeting really wonderful people. And then I came back and it was like Brexit, Brexit on steroids and just like, all this rhetoric about how Johnny Foreigner is going to be the ruination of the nation and all this stuff, you know, and I was hearing that. And then there, then there was this COVID thing and it was just like, fuck, they've taken everything away. <laughs> they like taken the freedom to travel, to live in anywhere in Europe, which was, was my plan to kind of move to Spain and then just teach. Yeah, and, and and do do gigs in Germany and stuff like that. And just basically, once you're in Europe, it's fantastic. You've got like twenty seven, twenty eight territories or different countries with their own scenes. Yeah, so you you can really have like a good touring life and playing life, and yeah. you know, with teaching and stuff. And then all of a sudden, that was stopped, and then and then it was COVID. So like, you couldn't even go out of your house. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it hit me quite hard you know when oh. it when it hit it hit quite hard and it was just like i can't believe i can't believe this is happening 
No, when you put it like that, it's it's quite it is quite frightening, isn't it? It's it's sort of one of those grim sort of science fiction kind of films that's um, that comes real actually, doesn't it? Yes. So just on that that sort of the 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 year of sort of doing the hurdy gurdy. I mean, did each person have quite a different take and a different style and a different kind of a lesson to be learned? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, because they're all different traditions. So there are different aesthetic considerations in the playing of of the, the the music. So and that's really comes down to things like modes used, um, ornamentation, time signature, phrasing, and intention. Um, because usually the the music for the hurdy gurdy is done for dancing, mm. but there are that, like each part of the world has a different dancing so so like say someone in sweden would have one set of dances but say someone in germany would have a completely different take on it and a frenchman would play in a certain way and um which would be completely different to a spaniard right spanish person and so i was traveling around learning all these different ways of playing yes did you make lots of notes yeah but blooming i've got i've got piles of it (laughs) a book that I should have written but haven't quite got round to and um, yeah loads of videos and recordings and it was really it was great I loved it yeah I could imagine actually and with the you know with the coming back to the album did you set out kind of right we've got 10 tracks we're going to do and give yourself a sort of particular time frame to do to get it all done well it was like a game of tennis. So I would do my thing. Lou would do her thing, send it back to me. I'd make some comments, some pertinent, some impertinent. And, um, and then that would be that track done. And then we'd go on to the next one. And it right. was literally like, if I hadn't done it in a week, Lou was like, I'm oh, just kind of kicking around in my house. Isn't it about time? <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting these little reminders sort of things on Facebook? You know, how's it going? Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's no, it quite... really was super quick. Yeah, absolutely. And then you got it sort of remastered in Oregon. Yeah, there's a, a guy called, um, I can't remember his first name, Carafa is his surname. Kevin. And he mastered, yeah, he mastered, the, mastered them for us. Um, and then as soon as they were mastered, we were cutting videos for them. Blimey, that is, that is so impressive, actually. So is this a kind of a, a sort of a, a musical adventure that you're going to be hopefully playing some live dates with? I think eventually the plan is, I think Lou has some trepidation about it. I've, I'm, I'm, we're trying to work out the good way, the best way of doing it, where we kind of keep a live feel, but we have these quite complex musical elements, these layers of sound. without it being like a karaoke thing um but there are ways of doing it with triggering the triggering the stems from a with a drummer or something like that yeah it's one way of doing it um so we're just kind of working out the logistics of that but we're actually working on an ep at the moment right god you're in you're in full flow here at the moment i just wondered if you've got any summer dates that we you're going to be able to sort of no no, we're not gigging in the summer. The plan is to do it because Lou's got this thing with the red guitars. Um, 
in the spring next year. I think she's got like a two, two, three week tour with them. And so she's, that's like a big commitment for her. So I think she's holding back on doing the live show until we've got a bit more. Right. Is this a kind of anniversary kind of experience that she's got? I think it's, there's a chap who's a really big fan of the red guitars who thought it was a really good idea for them to get back together and has the connections and the money to make that happen. Right. Yes. I've, I've, come, I've come across a couple of really wonderful stories of people who, you know, young, a young fan who sort of went off and made millions and then sort of bumped into the singer. I would love to remember who this artist was and said, look, I'm really rich. I can give you lots of money to record a new album. And he was like, okay, that's fine. And if you want anything, I have, you know, it's a bit like that. So, so there was a big fan of the Red Guitars who said. Yeah, you'll have to ask Lou about it. I've, she's, she's sort of, she tells me the people's names, but I'm really bad with names. If yeah. I meet someone and I see them, then that's okay. But if it's just the name, it's a bit abstract for me. Yes. Well, I do remember just briefly that story with Nigel, who went to work with members of Led Zeppelin in Nigel Eaton. And I'm not sure, this is a story that Mog told me, because he was very good friends at the time, was that Nigel had put some, you know, you know his cards around various record shops or, or instrument shops, and then literally a couple of, you know, possibly the same day, you know, the management of Led Zeppelin came in to look, they want a hurdy-gurdy player. I don't know what one of those is. And the person on the counter said, oh, someone's just giving me a card saying, you know, hurdy-gurdy player. And they went, oh, that's okay. And they phoned him and it was literally, we've got this kind of commitment tour and do you want to do it? And, you know, by the way, expense account, no problem. And it was like, oh, okay then. But whether that's a true thing. That's how it happened. And that was that was how it all it all, all materialised. So there you go. It does magical things. So look out for the red guitars next year. Yes. Yeah. I think it's kind of uh, in the spring. Check it out. Yeah. yeah. Twenty-two. Well, hopefully. Yes. So look. Interesting question. Well, that's vaguely. But if you could have said something to your sixteen to eighteen-year-old, you know, self, starting out with all the decades of experience and wisdom is there anything you would like to have told them or something that you said yes definitely keep doing that because that was a good idea but I would have done this or that you know just those those kind of a couple of bullet points that you might have thought yeah I would have told myself that oh my god um no I don't I think I probably would have said just do what you're interested in until you're not interested in it anymore and then do something else that you're interested in, which is kind of how I've, done, how I've lived. <laughs> um, I would have said that. I would have said maybe spend a bit more time um, visiting family because I lived like I spent a lot of time away. So I didn't, my connection with my uh, mum and dad was kind of at a distance for a long time. I'd like to have spent more time with my mum yes. uh, before, you know, before she passed away uh yeah i suppose that that's i would have i would have said i would have sat myself down and said the time's really important but the people are really important too it's more important than money and anything good advice it's always the thing isn't it that that's that's what comes through being here the decades yeah Yeah, the other thing would be to be brave right 
because everyone's faking it to a certain extent. It's just some some people are better at being brave. And that was me in conversation with the one and only Quentin Budworth. Um, yeah, so if you want to know any more information about the album that him, he and Lou have put together, it came out in May 2021. Um, it is there, here, there and everywhere. Agent Stalin, and it's called uh, European Howl. I have listened to it. It's brilliant. It will tap, you will tap your toes and um, think of... Yes, far off places and probably blows a bella. We always think of blows a bella at these times when you think of the hurdy gurdy. Anyway, look, this is um, this is David Eastall, the C eighty six show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C eighty six show, and all these have been interviews have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Do C eighty six show, and it's there. It's groovy. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.